Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books Network. I am Vladislav Lilic, your host, and a doctoral candidate in modern European history at Vanderbilt University. In today's episode, I am very happy to welcome one of my teachers at Vanderbilt and a most generous mentor a grad student can have, Dr. Michael Best, the Chancellor's Professor of History. Dr. Best studies and teaches the 20th and 21st century histories of Europe. He has authored several monographs, including such gems as Choices Under Fire, Moral Dimensions of World War II, and more recently, Our Grandchildren Redesigned, Life in the Bioengineered Society of the Near Future. Today, we will be discussing his new book, Planet Imperial, Humanity's Four Greatest Challenges and How We Can Overcome Them, cut off the Cambridge University Press. The study focuses on the existential risks posed by climate change, nuclear weapons, pandemics, and artificial intelligence, serving the solutions that have been tried and why they have fallen short thus far. Planet Imperial describes a pathway for gradually modifying the United Nations over the coming century or so, so that it becomes more effective at coordinating global solutions. The book explores how to get past ideological polarization and global political fragmentation, drawing lessons from the experience of the environmental movement and of the European unification movement. Dr. Bess, welcome to New Books Network, and thank you for taking the time to present your work to our listeners. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on the recording. As is customary on our channel, I will start us off by asking how your previous research has led you to write Planet Imperial. How long has this last project been in the making and what are some of the methodological challenges associated with attempts to write global histories of the future, as it were? Well, I guess there are two different time frames uh, by which I can answer that. There's the, the short time frame as I worked on this book over the past five or six years, um, just uh, working on it full time as my main project. The, the more honest answer is that this book is, in a sense, a return and a revisiting and a, a reflection on themes that have been deep pressing issues for me for my entire career going back to graduate school. So at another level, this is a book that's been in progress for 45 years. And I think is that's more accurate because in a sense, I'm not summing up things that I came to conclude from previous books, but I am revisiting uh, some of the core questions that I've been struggling with uh, and, and thinking a lot about ever since graduate school. Um, the, the challenge of, of uh, writing a book like this is you have to be uh, ready to sort of abandon the idea of being an expert um, because... Uh, in, it's a, you're, you're having to go into domains, um, both scientific, 
technological domains that I'm, I don't have a, a, a deep background in. Um, and you have to then also be ranging over topics in global history and international relations, where I, I've devoted parts of my career to working on problems like that, but that's definitely not been my sole focus. So the the methodological challenge of doing a, a global history like this is that you have to be ready to be interdisciplinary and not be afraid to get things wrong and then maybe talk to colleagues and run ideas past them and have them point out where you've strayed off course. I will say I got uh, uh, Cambridge University Press sent it out, uh, the, the first manuscript, the first draft, to six reviewers, which is a, an unusually large number of reviewers. And I was extremely gratified by the response I got because some of these reviewers literally went through the manuscript page page by page, and uh, I, they they offered uh, micro comments, but then they also offered comments that sort of stepped back from the way I was framing the questions as a whole. And it was definitely uh, some of the most uh, fruitful peer review I've ever received. It was extremely helpful. I'm so grateful to those people whose names I don't know. And let's discuss the four horsemen in some detail. Uh, how do you rank these existential threats in terms of their severity and acuteness? So climate change, I would rank as um, the number one threat because we know that it's happening. We don't know if a nuclear war is going to happen. Uh, we don't really know what AI... Uh, AI is not yet an existential threat today, but it could become one 30 or 40 years from now. Uh, pandemics, we've just lived through one. Um, they, they, the natural pandemics, uh, like, like COVID-19, um, are worrisome, but in some ways even more worrisome are the, is the possibility of... <clears throat> Somewhat even more worrisome is the possibility of bioengineered pandemics, uh, because not only are uh, professional laboratories, military laboratories working on uh, the bioengineering of various kinds of microbes, but now new developments in synthetic biology have broadened very dramatically the access to extremely sophisticated tools for genetic modification of microbes, uh, or even the synthesis of an entire of entirely new um, life forms, so uh, the possibility of a bioengineered pandemic maybe being developed accidentally by uh, college students just working in in a laboratory. People also um, engage in something called do-it-yourself biology. <clears throat> they set up their own labs. <clears throat> <clears throat> I'll restate that. People uh, also in, engage in what they call do-it-yourself biology. They'll set up uh, a laboratory with fairly sophisticated equipment in their garage, uh, and you can buy the equipment uh, right off the shelf from from Amazon or eBay, and uh, and perform remarkably complex and sophisticated experiments using the tools of synthetic biology, which are now available to the public. Climate change takes priority because we know that it's happening. 
I think more and more, as you read the scientific reports, people are being surprised by how much more rapidly it's happening than we thought even five years ago. And we don't know how bad it's going to get exactly, but uh, uh, the consensus is that it, it could be, it could pose an existential risk. And uh, of course, there's always the possibility of crossing a tipping point where the planet then the, the causal processes underlying the ecosystems of the, of the planet uh, launch a, a, a process that um, humans can no longer block or, or intervene in. We're not there yet, and we don't know where such a tipping point may lie, but we're playing with fire by, by not taking adequate uh, measures now. To, to be trying to head this this process off. So I was, if I have to rank them, I'd say climate change is the one uh, that uh, worries me the most, and I, that I think uh, is going to is going to challenge us mo- most dramatically. The only uh, good thing that I can say about about this very dangerous process of climate change is it is escalating gradually, incrementally. Whereas a nuclear war, if it happens, will happen very quickly. Uh, if an AI runs out of control, a poorly designed artificial intelligent system runs out of control, bad things would happen very quickly. What's happening with climate change is that the impacts are incrementally increasing. And, and more and more people then are having to confront the evidence of that. So as long as we don't come to one of these terrible tipping points with climate change, we may have an interval of time in which we can learn from what nature is trying to tell us and maybe adapt our systems uh, to, to, to handle it. And there are two types of action that we need to take regarding climate change. We need to uh, immediately you know, scale back down to net zero. We need to try to emit zero uh, CO2 and other greenhouse gases. And we can see that small steps in that direction are now being taken. Some of the steps are not so small, like moving to all electric cars by the mid 2030s. This is a promising uh, challenge that we're the promising step that we're now taking. And then we're also going to have to develop technologies for undoing some of the damage that we've already done, for removing some of the CO2 that is floating around up in the atmosphere. And because even if we were tomorrow morning to get to net zero emissions, we still have continued warming that's going to happen because the levels are already so high of CO2 and other greenhouse gases up in the atmosphere. So we're going to have to find technologies for removing uh, successfully and permanently those CO2 uh, emissions that are already out there. So that's the reason why I, I count climate change as the number one uh, threat is because the others uh, have sort of a conditional attached to them. If this happens, then it would be terrible. So let's try to not, you know, try to put in place systems that prevent it from happening. With climate change, it is happening. And it's in some ways worse than we thought. I would only have a pair of follow-up questions here. First, some of the environmental literature that I know argues that we are already beyond the tipping point, and that we're already in the phase of mitigation and adjustment. Um, do, you, do your thesis differ uh, from this in a way? And, and also, 
how does the, the return of war to Europe, of course, I mean, the, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, kind of sheds new light or, or further stresses your points about, about the nuclear threat? You must have written the part on nuclear arms before the start of the war in February this year. And has this in any way changed your, your thinking about, about nuclear arms race? Well, I would say we, uh, I agree with the assessments that say we're already in a mitigation uh, or adjustment phase because some of the effects of climate change are already upon us and they seem to be getting worse every year. So we are stuck with that no matter what. Even if we manage to mobilize against climate change with maximum effectiveness, it's going to take it's like asking an oil tanker in the middle of the ocean to suddenly change direction 90 degrees. It's going to take some time. Uh, some of the effects, for example, the acidification of the ocean and the, the warming of the ocean waters, uh, that's going to take centuries to, uh, to, to change, even if we were to stop all the, uh, all, all the nefarious emissions today. So we're in for escalating challenges of adjusting and mitigating uh, for the effects of climate change over the coming half century, even if uh, we're, we, we find a way to become uh, much more effective at countering climate change than we have been so far, even if we find the political will. Uh, but I'm, I'm very uh, opposed to, to people who say, um, it's, we're doomed. Uh, you know, I, I've heard I've heard that sometimes among students, and I've heard it also among some people who are making interventions in public and writing articles and saying, you know, we we we've already gone too far, and and the the space for effective human agency is is gone. It's over. I don't uh, I don't see that at all in the literature, and I th I think uh, it's it's important not to have blind hope, but a conditional form of optimism, uh, I think, is is terribly important. If we uh, can put in place the political measures, the economic measures, we still have space to engage successfully with this process and to turn it uh, back in the direction that we need it to go. We still have space for effective human agency, and so I, I, when I hear the the very doom minded uh, speakers uh, making their predictions and saying this it's too late. I, I think that becomes a negative self-fulfilling prophecy. And I don't think we're there at all. That, I don't see any at all my reading of the literature is that uh, there is still plenty of room for us to make a lasting and important difference. Now, when it comes to the, the fact that Europe has returned to war and Saber rattling with the nuclear button uh, has become much more common. Uh, that's, uh, in a sense, I've been frustrated over the past two decades, uh, two and a half decades, because the end of the Cold War led many people to think, oh, well, nuclear weapons no longer pose as much of a threat. And it, it may be that they didn't pose quite as much of a threat. Their number was significantly reduced. Uh, with the uh, implosion of the Soviet Union and the, what, what happened subsequently. But there were still 
there are, there are still today 13,000 approximately nuclear warheads sitting out there, uh, many of them on, you know, hair trigger uh, ready for launch. And that never went away. And so now we have a flare-up of, uh, of war and, and political strife. Uh, we have also the Americans and Chinese uh, entering perhaps what may become a new Cold War. Uh, and so people now are acknowledging that the nuclear weapons pose uh, a danger. To my reading, they never stopped being a danger, and this was always a possibility. Um, one of the things that... Uh, astonished me uh, in the book, in writing the book, I decided I wanted to try to envision from a novelist's point of view what the world was going to look like at various st stages or moments over this next century and a half, over the next 150 years. If X, Y, and Z happens, what will it feel like? What will it look like to be in that world? And so I include a number, about a dozen uh, little fictional vignettes that last somewhere between two pages and four or five pages in the book, in which I try to depict what it would, if you're sort of looking around yourself at the institutions and the, the things that are happening historically, what's it going to look like? What's it going to feel like? And one of the most challenging ones was I trying to imagine what happens when a nuclear-armed great power, in this case I chose Russia as an example, let's say 100 years from now, starts behaving like a rogue. What can we do? What, what, what tools are available to us for handling that? And I wrote a vignette in which I envisioned a, a leader who was sort of Putin-like, maybe even worse, which is kind of hard to imagine, but a Putin-like leader in a Russia gone rogue. And how do we, uh, in, in my vignette, they, I imagined that they were trying to develop a very dangerous new form of bioweapon. And uh, I, how does the world come together for something like this? And to my astonishment, the vignette has sort of come true. What I tried to depict in my vignette was a world in which, through the coordination of the United Nations and a better system of of a more cooperative system at the, at the military level globally, most of the world's major nations come together and uh, enact very stringent economic sanctions against uh, this Russia of 100 years from now, the rogue state. So you can't go after them with nuclear weapons, um, but you increase the pressure so dramatically that... Um, Eventually, what happens in my vignette is uh, there is regime change from within, and the Putin-like dictator of the future is overthrown from within by his own people, and a new government emerges that's more willing once again to play by the international rules. The, 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 the salient difference between what's happening now uh, with Putin and, and Ukraine uh, versus my vignette is of course that uh, today we don't have a well-coordinated uh, United Nations that's capable of coordinating uh, an international system that can respond kind of like an immune system to this disruption. We have China and India and Iran uh, who, are, uh, who are not participating in the sanctions and are enabling, um, they're enabling the sanctions to be broken. And that's, that's been the, the downfall of 
some attempts to use sanctions, uh, economic sanctions, uh, to solve military problems in the past. Not all sanctions have been unsuccessful, but when they've been unsuccessful, it's because they've been broken and you haven't had a sufficiently united front against uh, the rogue power. Uh, so, but I was I, I was flabbergasted that this. I didn't know. I didn't have any idea that the Russian invasion of Ukraine was going to happen. I knew just that I I was I saw Putin as a potential character that I could extrapolate from, and uh, I. I wrote this vignette, and then, lo and behold, m- many aspects of it came true uh, about a year after uh, w- when my book was already in the publication process. And there are some salient differences between what happens in my vignette and what happens, uh, what's happening in the world right now. And we don't know, of course, how the Ukraine war is going to turn out. But uh, it was it was truly uh, astonishing to see this thing that I was putting a century away into the future actually happening uh, right before my eyes. It is remarkable and frightening to, to see these vignettes unfold in our own presence. And it will be exhilarating to see how other vignettes fare in, in, the, coming, in the coming years or decades. Um, many, many authors pondering these same issues have argued that effective change must be revolutionary that a reworking of our global order and a meaningful, just engagement with planetary debt are no longer possible within the present system of state sovereignty and capitalism. You, on the other hand, are a firm believer in purposeful, incremental, and accumulating changes within the extent network of inter-societal and interstate relations. Can we indeed face peril, the peril without breaking the mold? Can there be a planetary sovereignty that does not transcend capitalism? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, I uh, I've come to conclude over my career as as a historian uh, that overall, uh, when you look at the the great revolutionary insurrections, the great revolutionary, uh, the, the, you know, the great moments like France uh, in 1789 or Russia in 1917 or China in 1949, these moments of deliberate uh, overturning of the, of the system and creating a whole new system anew, um, they have unleashed in, in, They've unleashed changes that some of which were intended, but most of which were not intended. And many of the results have been results that the proponents of the revolution definitely would not have wanted. You think of the terror in the French Revolution, and you think of the degeneration of the Russian Revolution into Stalinism, and you think of uh, the tremendous disasters that happened under Mao in in China after the revolution. Uh, I'm I don't I would never want to argue that those giant efforts at sudden drastic change have not also brought with them some concomitant good results that did align with uh, the intentions of the people who launched them. But I would say that the disasters that followed the tyranny, the slaughter, uh, far outweighed the benefits. Whereas 
when you look at big changes that have happened more slowly and incrementally. And here uh, I think of uh, the status of women over the past 150 years. I think of the status of the working classes from the time of Dickens to today. I think of the status and empowerment of African Americans in the United States from the time of slavery to the presidency of Barack Obama. I would never want to say that these reform, these incremental processes have reached their full fruition. Um, Those are still processes that are underway, only partially fulfilled. But uh, when the changes have happened slowly, they've had a chance to be voluntarily taken on by people who had become persuaded of the need for the change. And that happens only incrementally as the, the, the word spread, the values gradually are changed uh, with the passing years and decades. It's very hard to tell someone who is being terribly oppressed, uh, have patience, this will all be better if we go slowly. I'm, I'm keenly aware that that's a hard thing to hear when you, people are saying, well, yes, but I am the object of uh, violence now. I am experiencing my children can't eat, and you know, the, ter- the injustice is, is killing us right now. But my reading of the past two or 300 years is that the attempts at sudden drastic change forcibly imposed on the population as a whole, they've led to tremendous disasters. Whereas the more reformist approaches, gradually winning over more and more hearts and minds, have actually accomplished more closely what the people who launched those movements generations ago have intended. And so there's a, there's a moral background, I guess, to uh, the approach that I take in this book, where I try to envision uh, a gradual transformation of the way the people think of the United Nations and other crucial instruments for global governance, for coordinating policies across the national governments and aligning them so that they're working to handle these planet-level problems. All All four of our four horsemen can only be controlled, brought under control via uh, planet-level solutions, so we need planet-level instruments that are far more effective than those that we have today. And up until now, in my teaching, in my writing, I've always sort of left it a blank, dot, 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 kind of to be fulfilled later on. How, what kind of world was I actually envisioning when I said, oh, we need better instruments of coordination at the global level? I sort of punted on that up and up until this book. And I finally decided uh, it's time for me to actually try to sit down and envision for the first of all, envision what kind of order, what kind of federal world government, what it might look like if it were to uh, have a chance of working successfully uh, and also still still remain aligned with democratic principles and democratic values so it doesn't become a global tyranny. What would it look like? But then also, how can we get from here to there? And I felt uh, this was, if, if the first the book is divided into five parts, the first two parts are laying out the nature of these planet-level problems. The last three parts are envisioning immediate, middle-term, and long-term steps 
or a broader process spread out over 100, 150 mm. years in which we gradually uh, build the instruments uh, or build up and strengthen the instruments that have already started to be put in place since, well, since World War I, but then even more since World War II. Uh, I felt that it was uh, incumbent on me as someone talking about global level problems to try to finally sit down and, and work out what I envisioned would be the mechanics of a world federal government. What would be the limits on its power? What, what kind of uh, coercive power should it have? What would be the internal workings? Uh, and so I started looking at, at various systems of federal governance around the world. It's most of the uh, world's largest nations are federal in structure. The only exception is China, which has this sort of unitary uh, command hierarchy. But uh, most of the other large nations around the world are federal. And I, I looked at all these different federal systems. Um, some, for example, like Switzerland, put um, have a weak executive and uh, repo, uh, place most of the um, power at the cantonal level. Others, uh, like the United States, are relatively stronger. The, the states are, are relatively weaker compared to Switzerland. And uh, there's a great deal of power at the federal level. I decided if I'm trying to envision this at a global level, we'd have to be closer to the Swiss model than to the American one. Uh, a global federal government would probably need to have a weak presidency uh, serving more as a coordinating role. And it might even have to be a plural uh, presidency, uh, collective presidency, sort of along the lines of the Security Council. And so I, I, I decided I needed to really try to describe in some detail what uh, that kind of world government might look like. And of course, I'm completely likely to be wrong about what was going to be happening 150 years from now. But I decided that it was worth starting the conversation in the most concrete way possible by actually putting something on the table and then inviting sort of, let's have a conversation about what would what could go wrong with the, what I'm describing here. What do we, you know, what do we actually what systems do we need to put in place? I'll say that one of the surprising things that happened to me in writing this book is I became astonishingly more optimistic because it's quite, it became very clear to me that we've come farther along than most people acknowledge or realize, that we've already started dramatically building new types of institutions. This was particularly the case in the immediate aftermath of World War II, sort of the height of world federalism and, and a, a world in which large numbers of the populations of many nations around the world wanted, uh, were, were willing to look seriously at creating better instruments of global coordination. That was a high point. But overall, the trajectory so far is, has been one of, okay, Humankind is in, we're building globalization. We're, that's happening in transportation, in the economic sphere. And that's been happening pretty dramatically since the 1800s with a particular inflection after World War II. But now we are having to adapt to this newly globalizing world that we have created. And we're having to invent uh, more effective instruments for coordinating planet-level 
solutions to the planet-level problems that we are now powerful enough to create. So in a sense, I see us in a kind of Darwinian way adapting to the environment at the global level that we ourselves have created. And that was an interesting moment when I, I came to that realization, because it's not like we have to suddenly start doing something that we've not been doing in the past. We just have to keep working maybe harder than ever on processes and solutions that people have already been working on for the past hundred years. This perfectly anticipates my, my following question. So your conditional hope is a revamped UN, the system of supranational governance that would effectively bring together systemic and anti-systemic political forces and ensure stable peace. How would this UN 2.0 operate, let's say, in the year 2150, which is the end of your, your time frame. So the, the idea I, I, I borrow here is the, the concept of subsidiarity, which is one of the core organizing principles in today's EU. Uh, the notion that uh, much of the governance day-to-day uh, of people's affairs would continue to happen down the at uh, down the, the the same way they're they're happening today, the nation state, the local, cantonal, provincial, provincial, or state governments, down to local, you know, metropolitan governments, all that uh, governance infrastructure would still continue to be doing what it's doing today, more or less well. But that's that would not be the purview of the world government or the world federation. the The idea would be you've built this globe-spanning institution, gradually uh, put it into place over a hundred years of institutional, incremental institutional reforms, the end result would be a system that uh, provides an instrument for handling climate change much more effectively uh, than today, for uh, gradually dialing down the number of nuclear weapons and controlling uh, the arms race, which today is once again starting to escalate again with even new kinds of delivery systems that are destabilizing, um, regulate, you could regulate cyber warfare uh, much more effectively than, than today. Uh, and, and of course, a, a global system for handling, uh, for both preempting pandemics, uh, but also for regulating uh, research in synthetic biology, because uh, you don't want to have many nations having different levels of scrutiny and, and regulation for uh, biology research when it can be so potentially risky. Uh, and, and finally, for AI, uh, AI, like I said, today, it, it's not an existential danger. The most that AI is going to do uh, probably over the next 20 or 30 years is start throwing more and more people out of work because of automation with incre increasingly brilliant machines. That's going to be a very big challenge, but it's not an existential challenge. And it's, I think that uh, some, some economists are saying that it's going to require forms of basic income or uh, guaranteed minimum income, at least, uh, for the people who are chronically thrown out of work. The longer-term threat with AI is going to be um, that it, it, it potentially very powerful machines with 
relatively with relative degrees of autonomous decision making are going to be operating with humans in the military sphere. So there's a possibility of AI weaponry uh, that could be tremendously destabilizing because all it takes is one breakthrough somewhere and the military balance could be completely disrupted. People taking over each other's, uh, if if there are two nations in an arms race with AI and one of them has a breakthrough, it can presumably disable or potentially uh, take over the military systems of, of the rival that would, if that situation were to start developing, it's not hard to imagine terrible outcomes with preemptive strikes and so forth. So these are the types of issues that I see the, the need and the utility of a, a far more effective United Nations. Today, the, the, the key problem today is that the Security Council is something inherited from 70 years ago from the end of World War II and re- reflects the powers that happen to be prevailing at that moment. And too many nations that are much too important in the world today are excluded from the Security Council. Uh, so that's a big problem. The other big problem, of course, is in the General Assembly, it's basically a talk shop because uh, a, a tiny Pacific Island nation like Nauru uh, with 10,000 citizens has the same vote, one vote, as China or India, or the United States, which is preposterous. That's, you can't run a, an, an effective system of global politics when you're ignoring uh, the blatant uh, disparities in military, economic, demographic power. So I think what I'm envisioning is a new kind of politics, a new way of conducting politics as if it were a domestic sphere at the global level, specifically limited to handling these mega threats. And if there, there may be others by a century from now that I can't envision, but I'm specifically focused on these four. And using that powerful new global federal governance coordination instrument to devise the best possible policies for managing these four threats and leaving all the other uh, forms of the challenges of governance to the descending hierarchy of the governance institutions at the national level, state level, municipal level. Um, this is a principle of subsidiarity that the EU is is structured with, and I think that that's going to be uh, an essential quality of the global system if if it comes into being along the lines of what I've, I've envisioned. Thinkers like Joel Wainwright, a geographer from Ohio State, whose incredible work I cannot recommend strongly enough, argue that most scenarios in which life-shattering catastrophes are to be avoided include a significant measure of, quote-unquote, green authoritarianism or terror, something you already touched on in, in answering one of the previous questions. So a hegemonic, be it capitalist or not, global framework of governance capable of declaring world emergencies against detractors, including those with impeccable democratic credentials, and punishing them. Do you consider such grimmer futures probable, possible, or unthinkable? (laughs) Well, to me, they're definitely undesirable. Uh, There's something that we should be uh, resisting uh, as, as 
you can call it green authoritarianism. Uh, you can call it benevolent hegemony. And of course, the, the justification is for, for, for putting forward these kinds of visions is, well, we have to, we're going we're gonna to commit planetary suicide. And so if the option is a temporary phase of authoritarian governance to get us through the crisis and keep us alive, and so then uh, maybe 150 years from now, we've solved these problems through draconian dictatorial methods where one group imposes it on everybody else, uh, then we can uh, allow ourselves the luxury of returning to our more uh, feckless, uh, more time-consuming, and sometimes very frustrating forms of, uh, of change that we see in today's world. Of course, that's exactly the argument that Marxists once made, the dictatorship of the proletariat it, it's necessary to govern us force, forcefully through the transition, and then, uh, of course, it will wither away of its own, or it will be voluntarily disbanded. And to me, that's a, a thoroughly discredited way of thinking a, about uh, historical change. It, the, the dictatorship of the proletariat turned out to be a vehicle for tyranny, and uh, now you may say, well, yes, but we need to go through a period of tyranny, hopefully a benevolent one, in order to keep ourselves from extinction. That, that, that's not an insignificant moral argument. My, my feeling would be that, uh, first of all, who is going to create that? There, what, what, if, if, how does one group of people somewhere in the world, presumably a nation or some group of people, get the power to predominate over everybody else, more likely is the scenario of a balance of power emerging and then terrific, terrible wars uh, in seeking to get precisely that kind of green authoritarian hegemony. Uh, and so once again, we're back to the problem of the nuclear weapons. And uh, I, I imagine a global civil war uh, would be as bad a catastrophe and maybe an extinction event of, of its own. So I find myself very unreceptive. Uh, I, I think uh, these notions of a benevolent dictatorship to take us through, um, it, it, could, it, it could itself become an, another path to extinction. And we're much better off sticking with the values. Um, and, and here, I think people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King, you have to you have to be the kind of change that you want to see as your end result. I think we need to stay true to our values as we go through this very dangerous and challenging transition into a hopefully more sustainable world order. But uh, if, if we try, if we say that the urgency of the crisis demands authoritarian action, um, I think we'll just replay some of the catastrophes of the past. Finally, where has this project taken you? That's the best. What awaits us in, in your workshop? <laughs> uh, I've gone in a very different direction in, in, in some regards. I've uh, started teaching a new class. The title of the class is Human Flourishing. And the, sub, the implicit subtitle is What Does It Mean to Live a Good Life? 
And uh, so I've, I've started teaching that class this semester. There are four uh, sections to the course, personal flourishing, spiritual flourishing, national flourishing, what does it mean for a country to flourish, and then global flourishing. And I've got 90 students, and uh, I've never had a response like this before from my students in, in any course I've ever taught. Uh, they, we, we, we end up staying after class. Uh, several, a dozen will stick around after class. My office hours are full. Uh, they come, so many of them that we hold basically a small seminar during my office hours because they all have similar questions that they want to raise based on the lectures and readings. Uh, so this has become very clearly something uh, that's up for me, and, uh, and I'm finding a, a tremendous amount of satisfaction in the conversations, the ideas, uh, the earnestness with which these 18 to 22-year-olds are, uh, cha- are, are chasing after these centuries, millennial, millennial questions. Uh, and in some ways, some of the questions are not really answerable. They're just questions around which you organize a, a way of thinking about your life, and you never really come to a, a, a definitive answer. I'm thinking of uh, seeing what from this course uh, could be turned into a book. And it's one, once again, <clears throat> the nature of the course is s- sort of ridiculously uh, beyond anyone's expertise. So I've had to throw expertise out the window, maybe even more than for my past book. And instead, just uh, I'm asking questions, like I said, at these four different levels, personal, spiritual, national, and global. And I'm trying to envision how that might become uh, a, a book in which this ferment of, of fascinating conversations that I'm having with my students might be captured, because uh, I think many readers might find themselves excited to, in a sense, be invited into this conversation I'm having the most fun with this class than I've I've ever had in my whole 33-year academic career. Fascinating and so encouraging for us would-be teachers. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Best. It was a pleasure talking to you today, and thank you for joining New Book Network. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. <laughs>